0: Hello and welcome to Shed Sessions, the podcast recorded in the great sheds of the world, exploring food, art, and the environment. The podcast is brought to you by Omved Gardens, a food space and garden in North London. And I'm your host, Tom Broadhead. This week, we are sitting in the shed at the bottom of my garden, which is looking like it's kind of in the process of rewilding itself uh, as it's fairly overgrown and. I guess the only saving grace is my tomatoes, which are coming into season and right in front of the shed. Joining me in the shed today is Anna Suter, uh, who is the curator of Rewind, Rewild, an exhibition that recently took place at Onved Gardens. And also sitting in the shed with us is producer Louis, who has since our last recording session has grown a mullet, which is um, to be discussed possibly during the course of the podcast, maybe later on. So, welcome back. And what we're doing this week is we are once again looking at the Rewilding series. This is this podcast is part of the Rewilding series, and we are looking back in, at, at an event that took place um, a little bit earlier in the summer, which was a Rewilding exhibition uh, that Anna and her co-curator Beatrice Searl put together, which also included. Um, a series of talks by experts, leaders, biologists, uh, academics, policymakers in the field of rewilding. So this week we're going to listen back to a talk by a chap called Dominic Tyler. Um, and Dominic is an author, photographer um, and really well, Anna, I, I guess you can explain a little bit more about Dominic and who he is and what he's all about.
1: Sure. So um, Dominic's a photographer who um, balances his commercial work with some personal projects and collaborations. Um, and he often explores the relationships between people and their environments. Um, and in 2007, he collaborated with uh, writer Kate Rue on the book Wild Swim, which is fairly well known.
0: Massive favourite um, of my own.
1: It's a really good book. Yeah. yeah um Fantastic book. And uh, then uh, a little bit later in 2015, uh, Dominic wrote and photographed a book called Uncommon Ground, um, which is a sort of visual glossary of the British landscape told through words and photographs. Um, So we were really interested in inviting Dominic to speak because we saw this book as a sort of attempt to rewild our language and the ways we talk about landscape and the natural world.
0: Mm, That was a really interesting sort of... um... Parallel that you drew between this book and rewilding? Um, because of the talks that we've heard so far, a lot of them have been, I guess you might say, a lot more directly correlated. In fact, a lot of the people that you invited to talk prior to this maybe had rewilding as a word that they used in their lexicon. But for Dominic, it's a slightly more sort of abstract connection, but I think it's a really valid one.
1: Mm, yeah, it's a slightly more kind of tangential approach to rewilding when we were sort of thinking about. How do you rewild yourself? And how do you change the way that you think about things in order to allow kind of rewilding on a wider scale to come about?
0: Great, great stuff. Well, we're gonna um, go into Dominic's talk um, and hear what he has to say on rewilding and on the book. And then we'll dip in and out a little bit and um, have a little chat about various bits. Enjoy.
2: Hello. Uh, Thank you very much, Beatrice and Anna for inviting me to talk to you. Um, I just looking at my bio in the, in the sheet and I was horrified to see that it was, it was the longest there, um, which I don't deserve. Um, and actually I thought that, uh, since I am principally a photographer, um, it might require a little bit of explanation as to why I'm talking to you about language and landscape. But happily, um, in the course of my talk, it will become apparent why that's, that's come to pass. Um, so, um, as I say, I'm principally a photographer. I started working as a photographer about 25 years ago. Um, I freelanced for newspapers and magazines and then I gradually evolved my work into um, personal work and, and commercial practice. Um, over the course of that time I, I found ways to tell stories that I was interested in telling. And more recently, that telling has led me to writing a bit, and in particular working on a book called Uncommon Ground. And I'm going to talk mostly about that experience and where it took me. But first, I'd like to lay out a few of the ideas that are behind the book and how I came to make it. And to do that, I need to explain a little bit about where I started. Um, I grew up in rural Cornwall, very rural Cornwall. Uh, And my experience as a child was uh, very heavily influenced by the outdoors. Um, I used to come from school and immediately throw my books into a corner and then just head out and and ramble and walk and get muddy and wet. Um, This experience of the landscape um, was very immediate and very intimate. Um, But it wasn't connected to any needs or desire to communicate about that experience. Um, I knew what I was experiencing, but I never had to tell anyone about it. In fact, I avoided telling anyone about it. When my parents asked where I'd been, I relied really heavily on out. That was my <laughs> descriptive words. And there was a kind of understanding. My parents are very good at letting me have space to roam. Um, so from that background, it was quite a shock to the system when I was a 17, 18 year old, I moved to London to go to university. So this was a shocking transition to me. Um, And one of the things that I uh, did when I moved to London was take up photography. And photography became for me a means of exploring a new environment that I didn't understand. Uh, And also a language to try and express that um, environment to people. So for the first time as a student, I was using imagery to try and explore landscape and to try and communicate uh, landscape. So if we jump forward a few years, um, quite a few years, um, I've been working as a photographer for a while and I'm suddenly asked, slightly out of the blue, to work on a, a, a project with a writer called Kate Rue. This is in 2008. Um, this was a... Book that she wanted to make about the best places to swim outdoors in the UK. Uh, it was published in 2008, it's called Wild Swim. And it's credited along with a few other books at the same time, kind of in the zeitgeist, of revitalizing the outdoor swimming movement such as it is uh, in the UK. Um, as a project for me, oh, exciting. Um, it, was, it was a really wonderful project. Um, because it involved a year of travelling throughout the United Kingdom, finding and swimming in some of the most sensational places uh, that you can imagine. Uh, and not only was it photographically really rewarding, but it was personally really rewarding because it drew me straight back to my childhood in Cornwall, a lot of which was spent swimming in rivers and lakes and you know, places you shouldn't swim.
0: All well, that talk of Cornwall and wild swimming, that sounds pretty... Amazing. And it's not difficult to see sort of how Dominic then ended up segueing into writing the book that he's about to talk about next. But let's not jump the gun. So, growing up in Corn- Cornwall, th- this is quite an interesting thing because a lot of the people that we have uh, listened to throughout the duration of this series of podcasts it have come from the country and you need know, to, t- to talk about rewilding. Um they've come from the country and then they've wound up in town, which seems to have brought about a sort of conflict within themselves about rewinding, re- rewinding, rewilding and ecology. Um, but it, this to me seems quite it's quite different to when I speak to friends who've been born and raised in the city who don't necessarily seem to have this conflict. They don't seem to mention this relationship of they don't really know or feel like they're missing something necessarily in the same way that someone that comes from the si- the countryside to the town maybe feels which is possibly i know sort of riffing on it further it might be um i guess a dangerous point that we could get to in the future that as we live in the city even more our disconnection to the country becomes even more and actually we stop missing that thing and we stop to even contemplate what it is, the barrier between the countryside and the urban environment.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think it can be a big problem. Um, I think it comes down to education a lot as well because the school system doesn't really encourage children to build a connection with with the natural world. I think if you're already living in the countryside, it's easier to just find those connections for yourself. Kind of like Dominic was saying, mm. um, they were just part of his everyday life. Yeah, um, you just
0: walk out your door and stand in a cowpat.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I guess they elements of the natural world just come up more naturally in conversations that you have with your friends or with your parents or whatever, if you're surrounded by rural life or nature or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I guess if you grow up in a city then it's harder to kind of feel like you just are finding those elements in your day to day life. Um, I think that's partly because the city is deemed to be a kind of unsafe place. So you can't just as a child walk out your front door um, and you can't go around sort of poking around in bushes in parks and stuff because, you know, there are probably all sorts of horrible things in there. Mm.
0: Um, I guess this though highlights, you know, the importance of provisioning good outdoor space for people for young people in cities, doesn't it? Because, you know, without that, there is very, very limited opportunity to to facilitate yeah. that connection.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you, the thing is that you don't necessarily have to live in a really wild or rural place to have a connection with nature. Um, you can do it in, like, an inner city nature reserve or just, like, a patch of mud in a suburban garden. There's all sorts of things to find. Um, or in a park or something. And, like, there are probably more songbirds visiting your garden in Peckham than there are in like a whole acre of land in the Highlands, for instance, because you've got trees, you've got all these different plants, you've got flowers. You've got a seriously um,
0: overgrown garden to that, in this case. You've got probably... lots of
1: lovely tomatoes. Oh, well, um, they're not touching those
0: tomatoes, I promise you that, I'll come out with a big stick. <laughs> I am a naturalist, but when it comes to my tomatoes, they are not getting nowhere near them. Um, Actually, you know, interestingly, when it comes to tomatoes, right, this is getting a bit off topic, but... There was a guy here a few weeks ago, sent around the, by the landlord, is to paint, right? And he saw my tomatoes in the back garden, and he said, "Oh, you don't want to do that. You'll have rats." I thought, how, how bizarre that to that, you know, the disconnection between growing stuff and sort of having an. He said, he said, like periodically, you don't want to grow grow stuff in your garden. You'll have rats mm. in before you know. it. And I thought, that's so bizarre coming from me, you know, coming from the countryside where growing stuff is just. A very natural thing there's almost this fear of even having a tomato plant in the back garden
1: yeah i guess you know if also you know rats are animals i mean they're not that great to have in your house for instance but um there are obviously all sorts of other animals in the garden as well um but if no one ever kind of points them out to you as wildlife then you'll never think of them in those terms but you could easily have a sort of like amazing connection with like blackbirds or something in your garden um which you'd maybe get from growing particular plants or whatever it is um and you can kind of have a connection to nature but it's often lost uh because you don't think to think of it in those terms
0: Mm -hmm. and also there's um another thing that uh, dominic talks about there is wild swimming and i think it's 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 a good thing to just pause on for a moment because, as he says, it's something that's gone through a real zeitgeist moment. And I'm actually obviously a keen wild swimmer myself. You know, <laughs> live in Peckham, make <laughs> films, drink drink uh, roast coffee, nice roast coffee. Obviously into wild swimming. What else? <laughs> Growing a mullet like Louis. I mean, it's just cliche, isn't it? But I do want to talk about it a little bit because obviously wild swimming we've gone through this um there's a health there's a health benefit awakening that's come with it but there's also a sort of spiritual awakening that's come through it i.e it really is a fantastic way to uh, interact with your environment in a very harmonious way um and one of the questions asked in the q a admittedly asked by me was that was what in dominic's eyes was the effect of the wild swimming book um and if you don't know the Wild Swimming Book, it basically is a guide to all of the swimming spots of the UK, or all of the easy to reach swim spots of the UK. Um and it goes through sort of county by county. And he said that in creating this book it gave people permission to carry out a fairly obvious task of jumping in a river. And actually this is something that I've, I've definitely experienced by going to those very swim spots, people leaning over the bank and going, Oh, I didn't know you could swim here. Um and it's it's interesting, I guess what I took from that is that we almost, as much as we do feel like we control elements of the countryside, we do kind of still need permission as humans to access it and to really enjoy it. It's, it's a very funny sort of dichotomy.
1: Mm, yeah, and I think, you know, gaining kind of social permission for your actions is such a key part of living in society and, you know. Um, and I think there's a tendency to think that being in water can be dangerous, which it obviously can be in some circumstances. So if you can have a kind of few brave pioneers go in and test the water before you, then it can be reassuring if you don't have much experience of swimming outdoors or um, or if, you know, you're not a super strong swimmer or whatever, you can find ways of enjoying it if someone's kind of been in before you, I guess. Um, I feel like it kind of works the other way around too in the sense that If everyone's doing it, then you kind of feel like, oh, maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe I should try this. And I think that's like it works on the level of kind of just trying out wild swimming. But it also works on the level of um, sort of the environmental movement um, and that can have really positive kind of reactions from that sense of sort of how how human beings interact with each other and how we give each other permission to act in a certain way
0: so it's, it's almost building a sort of very very subtle peer pressure isn't it that you could yeah in a ladder way through to you know even having a keep cup or something something such as that or taking your own bags to shopping
1: yeah exactly yeah slightly
0: yeah. abstract and tenuous link but yeah. <laughs> um did you have anything else you wanted to say Anna, or should we go back to dominic Rena. Let's
1: go back to Dominic. OK, I think.
0: cool. So we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. Dominic had just finished talking about wild swimming and is basically um, starting to tell us how that sort of um, influenced his next piece of work back to Dominic.
2: It was a really wonderful project um, because it involved a year of travelling throughout the United Kingdom, finding and swimming in some of the most sensational places. Uh, that you can imagine. Uh, and not only was it photographically really rewarding, but it was personally really rewarding because it drew me straight back to my childhood in Cornwall, a lot of which was spent swimming in rivers and lakes and you know, places you shouldn't swim. Now, as much as it was a, a lovely reconnection to the natural world, it was also a turning point in my life because it marked the point where I'd spent as much time living in London as I had lived as a child in Cornwall. Uh, And realizing this was a sort of personal crisis for me because I always thought of myself as a country person. And yet here I was with more time on the clock in uh, in, uh, an urban setting than a rural setting. And to compound this, one particular experience uh, stung my sense of self. Kate asked me to write up some of the swims that she hadn't been able to get to. And this forced me to try and communicate about journeys in uh, rural landscapes, almost for the first time, actually. And I found that I couldn't couldn't do it. I was relying so heavily on such bland terms that they were kind of rendered meaningless. Um, And this was a shaming experience and a shocking experience. Uh, I felt I couldn't possibly hang on to my sense of myself as a rural person and not be able to communicate a simple journey from place to place on the moors. Uh, So this shaming, shocking, terrible personal experience was what came, what drove me to work on the work that became Uncommon Ground. Uh, At first, I didn't know I was going to be working on a book, but I I realized that my vocabulary for the landscape was so horrendously impoverished that I needed to do something about it. And what I did first was started to collect words for landscape experiences, words for landscape features. Uh, And I looked around for collections of landscape words. I looked basically for a dictionary of landscape. And there are fantastic Uh, dictionaries of geography and there are great dictionaries of geology and there are great uh, works on ecology and uh, environmental management and there are great poetic works but I couldn't find the thing that I was looking for which was was something that kind of avoided all those regular um, taxonomies and brought the experience of being outside in the landscape in one encyclopedic work and then I did find it but it was for the American landscape. And it's a great work, it's called Home Ground, uh, Language for the American Landscape, and it's edited by, um... thank you, yes. Can you repeat that, it's Barry? Barry Lopez. Barry Lopez, okay. Just so that everyone can write that down, because it's really worth it. So this, this work by Barry Lopez, edited by Barry Lopez, it included writers from all sorts of different backgrounds, all contributing in the kind of encyclopedic work. Uh, to exactly the kind of work that I wanted for the British landscape. And then I tried to find someone to work with to make this book for the British landscape, and I couldn't find any writers at that point who wanted to, to do it. And a lot of people were really concerned about working on a book which, which avoided those taxonomies. They said, the geologists are going to be really annoyed with you if you do a work which, which um, cites geology but also cites e- ecology. And they said, well, the naturalists are going to be really annoyed with you because they're going to say, you know, why have you put our words in with their words? It seemed to be everything was, was blocked up, much like the British landscape is actually blocked up by fences that prevent all these interactions. So anyway, I decided to, to do it myself, um, which, was, which was kind of terrifying because, like I say, I'm a photographer. Photographers don't tend to write. I mean, it's a bit of a thing. You either work in pictures or words. So you don't... Um, nevertheless, uh, Uncommon Grounds was the project I eventually worked on. Um, I think there's a copy of it up in the library if you want to take a look. Um, and it became in the end a very simple book. Um, it's about the experience of being outdoors. It takes about a hundred different terms which maybe are old or forgotten or strange in some way or another. It illustrates them with a picture of that landscape feature that that, that's named or the landscape phenomenon that's named Um, and it tries to build a slightly more complex Lexis of the landscape than the reader might go into the book with having. Um, So that's quite a long preamble. uh, And I'd like to show you some pictures and I'd like to show you some pictures of a few examples of the way that the experience of making the book Broaden not just my vocabulary for landscape, but also my, um, my experience of landscape and the potential for experience. Uh, and this happened in, um, in different ways. Uh, let me just show you shamelessly plugging the, the book. Um, so one of the ways that, uh, I hope you can s- sort of make that up, One of the ways that um, these words, rediscovering these words, enrich my experience um, was by naming an experience that I didn't know had a name. Uh, And the best example of that um, is is this, cowbelly. And this is actually a word I got from the Barry Lopez book. Um, and it was, it was worth buying the book just for this. So a cowbelly, um, I, might just, I might just read a little bit from my entry on the on, on cowbelly. Uh, and, and actually just on a personal level, this was the point at which I knew the book was gonna work for me when I found this word and realized it named something that was already important to me. So cowbelly. In the wide, slow meanders of rivers where the current slacks to near stillness, the finest sediments carried in the water are allowed to fall to the riverbed, where they form a silt as soft as a cow's belly, hence cowbelly. These sediments are so subtle that the layer in which they're suspended lies between a liquid and a solid state. Bare toes entering a cowbelly would register a change of temperature before a change of substance from silky water to silky mud. A summer day that I spent beside the river liner with my friend Nicky and his family has stuck unusually firm in my usually flaky memory. A triptych of strong sensory experiences left their mark. I remember the feel of the cowbelly under my feet as we waded out to a deep pool that was held in the crook of the riverbed. I remember the taste of hot dogs, sun poached in their can, which we ate briny and dripping in our feral fingers, jittering with cold from the swimming and then there was the sight of Nikki's mum sunbathing. I can't remember whether she was topless, which would have added a prepubescent frisson, but I do remember that her skin was as smooth and tanned as the Frankfurters. <laughs> I didn't have a word for any of these experiences that day, and even now I had struggled to, ma- to name the last two. Junk food joy and proto-lust, they describe but they don't evoke. But when I read the definition of cowbelly for the first time in Home Ground, language for an American landscape, it was instantly familiar. It retrospectively named the experience so perfectly that it's hard to believe I didn't always know the word and I will always associate it with the nitrate tang of hot dogs and the unsettling magnetism of exposed skin. Cowbelly. So, uh, as I say, when I found this word and I realized that it described an experience I had already experienced and, uh, and amplified it, magnified it um, by giving it a name. It made, me, it made it possible to access that memory in, in ways that I hadn't managed to access before. And that's one of the ways that these, these words have enriched my experience. Another way, oh, here's monkey's birthday. Is monkey's birthday a term that's familiar to anyone here? No one. Has anyone here experienced uh, rain when the sun is shining? Monkey's birthday. But amazingly, a monkey's birthday, it's an experience that's named in almost every culture in the world and in uncannily similar terms. So for instance, and let me just have a little look at, I haven't named, okay. So uh, in South Africa, it's a jackal's wedding. Uh, In Bulgaria and Vanuatu, which is a Pacific nation, they both say (laughs) the devil's getting married. Okay. In the south of America, they say the devil's beating his wife behind the door with a rolling pin. Okay. They're all like weird events. So in, in Japan, I think it's a fox's wed- wedding. All over the world, I mean, you, you find kind of the confluence of these ideas in very weird ways. Um, so th- this, is, this is a kind of experience which we've all had the experience of being in a, in a rain shower in the sun. Um, somehow giving it a word not only adds to that experience, but it connects you to lots of similar experiences in, in, in other cultures. Um, Fleeting phenomena. Okay, so holloway is an example of a term which adds historical understanding to a landscape feature. So, um, this is not the most un- unknown term, a holloway. It's, uh, it's a path that's made by the passage of um, uh, driven cattle into market, uh, and it's literally a, a hollow way. Um, you, you find them all over the countryside um, and as soon as you know the meaning of the term it adds a whole layer of historical understanding uh, into what that what that uh, route was used for and when a similar term a tolmen a tolmen is the cornish word for a hold stone and it has two different historical um, underpinnings uh, one is mythological because tolmen were used for many, many years as uh, uh, sites of uh, Druidic, uh, pre-Christian, and then adopted by Christian uh, um, rituals. So um, this whole, you can't see the scale of it in this photograph, but it's actually big enough to get through. And this site, this is uh, on the, uh, the banks of the Tin River in, in Devon. Uh, was used as a healing site, so people would be passed through the stone to cure Lumbago or what have you. Uh, and th- these rites continued after the Christianization uh, of the land. And the reason they were used for these uh, mythological rituals, uh, mythic rituals, is because no one understood how they were formed. There, there wasn't the understanding of how a natural geological process could form a Tolman. Um, so they became uh, you know, metaphysical, mystical. Uh, So that's one layer of historical understanding, the ritual significance of a Talmud. But the other layer of historical understanding is the geological formation of it, because it takes thousands and thousands of years under specific circumstances to form a Talmud. And it starts with the slightest little force, it starts with um, a force called a kolk, which is another great word, which is when uh, a river eddies pick up small stones and then those small stones slowly abrade into the bedrock of a stream. And over time, you get a little dip in it. And then either that dip continues and forms a tollman on its own, or the river level drops, it leaves an existing dip, and then through uh, frost, uh, through three feet, oh, oh, freeze-thaw erosion, that dip is slowly carved out until it goes all the way through, and then you have a Tolman. Um So that level of historical understanding actually goes back eons before the ritual understanding, and then piggybacks because no one understood it, and that's where you have the rituals. Right, uh, and this is a kind of more modern kind of um, erosion, is desire path a term which is familiar to many of you? Okay good, that's nice. So desire path like the Holloway actually is a route that's made by um, passage, um, but there's a little interesting aside to desire paths which I, I wanted to share. Um, Desire paths wouldn't exist in the perfectly planned city park. These unofficial shortcuts which become dirt tracks beaten into the grass by footfall are good indicators of how well the architects of a given space have anticipated the needs or desires of its users. Where these needs have been poorly understood or poorly accommodated, these failings are annotated by truncated corners and bare earth bypasses. Direct connections between A and D where the official route passed by B and C. For some reason, Gaston Bachelard, and in particular his 1958 book, The Poetics of Space, is widely but erroneously cited as the source of this term. Bachelard's, book, Bachelard's work ex- examined architecture as an experienced phenomenon looking at various types of built environment, nests, wardrobes, corners, and huts, from how precise the familiar hill paths remain for our muscular consciousness. These are terms, desire path and the next one I'm going to talk about, that that I think add wonder to the commonplace. So this is another way in which I found words added to my experience of the the outdoors. Adding wonder to the commonplace. Well-worn path. One now so established that people follow it even though it leads nowhere. Presumably because it looks good. As Bachelard actually did say in the Poetics of Space, What a dynamic, handsome object is a path. How precise the familiar hill paths remain for how precise the familiar hill paths remain for our muscular consciousness
0: fascinating stuff from dominic that i mean some of those words really are they're like poetry really cowbelly holloway desire path and it, it strikes me that these words sort of elevate landforms and land features into works of art and you know when he refers to Bachelard talking about bird's nest it's it's not difficult to see the sculpture-like quality of those um, of those features, or or of something still sort of anthropological, but in the landscape, such as a dry, a dry stone wall. Um, is it? I, I guess is it a correct assumption to make that that the, the, these words are elevating landforms to works of art, and and if so, is that is that a positive thing for our appreciation of the environment?
1: I think it could well be. Um, I mean, yeah, we could sit sit here and debate the definition of art all day. Um, so let's maybe not do that. But I think maybe the word craft is quite helpful here. Mm. Um, like whether you're referring to a dry stone wall or a bird's nest, um, I think it is a form of craft. Um, and that's because I think... It's intentional in both cases and it's beautiful um, whether the kind of aesthetic qualities of that outcome are deliberate or not. Um, it still has an, an intention behind it. And um, it gives us
0: it just heightens our sense of appreciation for these things that seemingly OK of dry stone wall is created by man, but it's still. A sort of landform that fits into the environment is something that has a mythological feel to it isn't it
1: yeah and i think you know aesthetics are definitely an important element of the natural world um there's no doubt about it and there's been some really interesting research about this recently in terms of um you know, how things look is really important, if not vital to a lot of species like bees and insects with flowers or birds with their mating ritual and what things look like are really essential. Um, but I think in our kind of current way of looking at things, our current society, then if you say that something's just aesthetic, then it sort of implies that being beautiful means that it's intrinsically shallow or frivolous but i don't think that's necessarily true yeah
0: it's quite a dualistic term just aesthetic yeah. i mean it, that's effectively what this book does is it it sort of cracks open the meaning of what it is to be aesthetic it cracks open mm. the folklore and and the stories behind it um and revisiting a couple of those other words i mean cowbelly that's i mean what a beautiful vivid description of dipping your toes into the inside and meander of a stream is, you know, it's almost poetry. And it, it doesn't almost, it doesn't just give us an understanding or an appreciation of the land, but it gives us a shared experience. I know when I read that out to a friend of mine, she was, she was sort of struck. And even though it's not something you often spend your time doing, dipping your toes in, in sand on the inside bend of a river, it is something that is so uh, visceral that you can't help but be slightly enamoured and enchanted by it.
1: Mm, I was going to use the word visceral as well. Um, and I think especially uh, Dominic's um, description of it mm. and of that experience that he has, which is sort of the word sort of evokes to his in his mind. Um, and I think, yeah, kind of using words like that and using that kind of bodily kind of experiential imagery kind of suggests a different or an alternative way of imagining or like re-remembering an element of a landscape um or of like an experience that you might not even realize that you've ever had um like, I would never have thought that I would have had that experience. But then when you read that description, I suddenly go, I do have vague memories of standing in in streams when I was a child. Mm. And I do remember that kind of sensation. But, but not I've of never... rubbing
0: a cow's belly. No, I, I mean, I can't say as I've ever rubbed a cow's belly. But No, I,
1: I'm quite scared of cows.
0: No, I can't imagine going up to a cow and wanting to sort of validate this phrase by rubbing its belly. But I'll take Dominic's word for it. I mean, yeah. with that beautiful description. Yeah. <laughs> And then at one of the other points that he, one of the other words, sorry, that he visits is Holloway, which is obviously so relevant in London. Apologies to to our massive audience that are listening globally. Um, But so Holloway is is one of the main arterial roads in London. It's a three-lane carriageway. Um, And it's really interesting that he described that this word Holloway actually means um, the sort of th- a road that is carved out by the thoroughfare of cattle, um, eroded over a long period of time. It sort of evokes hundreds of years of weather beaten track and maybe s- slightly broken track, and it's really interesting that obviously in the city we have a road, a three lane carriageway that's called this, but it, the the histor historical context is far simpler and more um, rustic, you might say. So. The language really has also has this power to break down the historical context of an urban environment and make us go, actually, you know, although we are in this huge conurbation, we it's not that long since we came from these sort of, this these spaces of folklore and sort of historical.
1: Yeah, mm. definitely. Um, and I think a lot of, actually, a lot of the things that he talks about and the words that he described can... Be experienced in an urban environment as well as a rural one you associate them with a rural ro- one but um, and you know you probably wouldn't even comment on them if you're not in that mindset to notice that something sort of natural or sort of a beautiful element of nature um, which is probably part of that kind of almost like fetishization of the rural that we talked a little bit about touched on a bit earlier Um, but you know he talks about the the sun shining through the rain, for instance. Oh, that one's wonderful. Um, monkey's, monkey's birthday. Monkey's birthday. Um, Great. And you know, it has this fascinating kind of history of this word and this kind of global applicability of this concept. But obviously, you can easily experience that in in a city. And I feel like once you've once you know this phrase you're much more likely to maybe just take a moment to appreciate that whilst you're even if you're standing in Oxford Circus Um, (laughs) shouting monkey's birthday yeah exactly (laughs) jackal's (laughs) wedding the
0: devil's getting married it'd sound like you're sort of preaching some new age religion wouldn't it that's all right fantastic should we try it (laughs) (laughs) should we do the next podcast in in Oxford Circus going around shouting these terms
1: Louis, the sound engineer, is shaking his head. That yeah. sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> he, he
0: would love it. Louis's done a lot worse. <laughs> Sorry, we digress.
2: In uh, regional dialects in England, um, uh, in the British Isles, we have over 350 different words for mud. Okay. Um, which brings to mind maybe the, the, the erroneous idea that the Inuit have 500 words for snow um this is this is three of no, sorry four of my favorite stabble ooze kutcha, and slub so a stabble is um mud that's made by foot footfall so when you have a lot of cattle or a lot of people going through a gate it creates a stabble an ooze is a southeast or east anglian term for a big mud flat uh cutcher actually comes from india it's a um uh uh it's the opposite of pucker. So whereas pucker means sort of stable and well held together, kutcher means sort of friable and, and breakable. Uh, and a slub, a, a slub is the kind of mud that sticks to your boot and then sticks to itself, so that by the time you've got across the field, you're carrying at least three or four tons. <laughs> ah. I mean, I very arbitrarily divided up my experience of these words into, into four, and this is the fourth one I've, I've chosen to talk about. Um, which is examples of terms that shift our relationship with landscape. Uh, And this is one that shifted my relationship with landscape. This is tide rack. And I'm gonna read um, from tide rack, if I may. On any given beach, the high tide line is typically marked by the assortment of natural and man-made remnants called the tide rack that are fly-tipped onto the sand by the retreating waves. The three meanings of rack Wreckage, marine vegetation, and the archaic retributive punishment encompass, with a disquieting precision, much of the wider significance of this strip of detritus. Tide rack would once have been composed of driftwood, kelp, and other marine vegetation, but during the 20th century, the mix came to include more and more plastic. As this most unbiodegradable material became ubiquitous, There is scarcely now a beach in the world that isn't endowed with its own multicolored display of the many and various uses of polymers. Of these uses, I think two deserve special mention. Ghost nets are the commercial fishing nets, which are now almost exclusively made from nylon and HDPE, which are extremely resistant to damage from saltwater and UV light. While this is good for fishermen, it means that lost or abandoned nets won't degrade and can continue to pose a threat for sea life for hundreds of years. These ghost nets drift with the ocean currents, and by the time they wash up on shore, they've often become shrouds for unfortunate seals, turtles, dolphins and whales. And the second term I want to mention is nurdles. They're also known as mermaid's tears. These small pellets look like fish eggs, but are actually an early stage of the life cycle of plastics. An easily transportable bulk material that is ready to be melted and processed into anything from bottles to fleeces. Sadly, the resemblance to a food source isn't lost on the many species that ingest nurdles with dire and sometimes fatal consequences. The things we discard through carelessness, wastefulness and thoughtlessness return in tide rack like guilt. And in this sense, they fulfill their archaic meaning perfectly. Um, I've got five minutes, yeah. So I've got a few more images to show you, but I'm not gonna show you because I wanted to wrap up. uh, I I came early today because I knew there was gonna be interesting talks to listen to. And actually there's there's so much I'd like to uh, work in. Um, So let me see if I could do that concisely. One of the hypotheses that kind of developed as I was working on Uncommon Ground was that um, by replacing the kinds of language that I was stuck with as as an adult and not being able to talk about the, the, the landscape, by replacing that generic and simplified and impoverished vocabulary with a specific, complex and enriched Lexis, we can transform not just our view of landscape, but really importantly, begin to enable fundamental changes in our relationship with nature. Um, When Beatrice asked me to talk here about rewilding, I struggled to find the connections between my work and rewilding, but actually it's become really clear to me over the course of um, preparing this, but also listening this morning, that there are direct connections. you talk about species reintroduction, and my work is very concerned with word reintroduction. And we talk about the re-establishment of biodiversity my work is very concerned with rebuilding lexus and re-enriching conceptual ecosystems we talk about the resumption of natural processes and i'm very concerned with the the resumption of conversations about nature without this uh, enriched lexus without these complicated terms without these specific words we can't have proper conversations about the kind of complex interconnected nature that we're all hoping to recreate. Um, Ecosystems, they operate on interactions. Well, what what better example of an interaction than a conversation? Um, I'm gonna leave you with one last um, reading, which I hope maybe sums this up. Rebuilding our landscape vocabulary might enable more complicated conversations about nature to take place. And complexity offers more than just a deeper understanding. An ecosystem is most resilient when it's most complex. The more you simplify and homogenize the system, the more susceptible to attack it becomes. A wild meadow with its variety of species and myriad connections will never fall to a single factor, as might a wheat field to a plague of locust. The greatest threat to a meadow is that it might be plowed up and turned into a wheat field. Wherever complex natural systems are replaced by monocultures, there is an increased risk of collapse So modern agriculture mitigates this risk with fertilisers, pesticides and herbicides. There is a parallel with what might be called conceptual ecosystems. We hold the concept of landscape that has become so vastly simplified and homogenized. Rather than reflecting the variety and interconnectedness of nature, our concepts are reduced to block terms like greenfield, brownfield and industrial estate. Just as simplification renders a natural ecosystem vulnerable so these block concepts make our ideas about the landscape and its value fragile and easily dismantled. When in 2014 the then UK Environment Secretary Owen Paterson announced that developers might be permitted to destroy ancient woodlands provided they planted replacement trees elsewhere, he demonstrated a mindset that results from a collapsed conceptual ecosystem. To consider trees a transferable commodity, like steel or oil, is a woeful misunderstanding of the value of a tree, especially an ancient one. Accepting the equation of new for old could only make sense to someone whose concept of the the natural landscape is so simplified and disconnected as to be rendered meaningless. So I'll leave you with that as a cautionary tale.
0: 350 words words for mud. We don't. I mean, we don't really think of our own culture as containing that sort of wisdom. You know, it's something that, as he says, is almost an indigenous culture um, relationship. Having that many words, the five hundred words in the Inuit language, but Which actually, is actually
1: not true. But it's okay, really, yeah.
0: <laughs> sort of a common trope that's yeah. thrown around, right? But you know, we we in we do have actually something that we forget and maybe it's something to do with colonial shame that we have our own uh, indigenous culture that is arguably as rich you might you might call it i don't know this this some blend of saxon and and viking and angle whatever it doesn't matter where it came from but it is there um and it's sort of caught up in local languages as much as anything uh, and what, what I really like about it, with the cudge and the, what were the other words that he said? Slub. Slub. Wonderful words like really roll off the tongue. There's a kind of fondness of the disorderly there. And it's it sort of brings us full circle to a topic we talked about earlier on, which is control and how humans are so part of the difficulty with letting space go back to nature is that we have trouble as humans, like, ceding control. And perhaps we all just need to sort of have a better sense of humour and be stop being control freaks and just embrace <laughs> embrace the disorderly. And maybe these words have a real power to enable us to do that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um yeah, I, I love that idea of all these different words from mud. It's an amazing kind of coming together of things. Um I think it does also help to suggest that there is this connection with the natural world that we have actually lost, which is something that I think people kind of debate, but it's maybe like a depth of connection um, that those words sort of suggest. Um, and I think you know one of the things about living in a city or anywhere that's kind of built up is that you there are very few places where you can get muddy. <laughs> um, I say so
0: sitting here in my sliders <laughs> on a wet, rainy day.
1: But, you know, like the primary function of roads and pavements is to separate us from the ground under our feet and like the smells and the dirt and the bacteria that come with mud. Um, And I was thinking about this when I came down here to Peckham, actually, that, um, you know, walking down a street in one part of London is much like walking down the street in another part of London. But if there were no pavements, then you would probably have a very different understanding of like the geology and the soil makeup of the place where you were um and you kind of would get to know that kind of local knowledge a bit more so you know you'd find out that there's very different mud in north london to what there is in south East london um and when you stop and think about it, it almost becomes obvious like that's why there are no tube lines down here because the, the mud is not appropriate for building tunnels in
0: sure and that's why there's say in north london you have you 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 have a slightly hillier relief right you have like up towards Hampstead, highgate and further north you're up in up in the the local hills really so there must be but we you're so right we've we don't have any appreciation for that sort of those minutiae difference Mm,
1: exactly and that's the kind of like local sort of semi-indigenous knowledge if you like that you might gain from just walking down a muddy path every day you learn something about whether it's clay whether it's chalk um, which you just tend not to get when you try and put that landscape under control I'm not really suggesting that we should dig up all the pavements in London but as <laughs> think we met with a little bit of opposition <laughs>
0: to do that but um, yeah I see the point it's it's yeah it's something actually I find when it, it's very interesting when you see people in parks especially in the summertime there's this real tendency to people kick off their shoes very quickly and i wonder i've always wondered because there's there are some theories about there's the barfus community about having an electromagnetic connection with the earth there's Mm. other people who might just have sweaty feet um (laughs) (laughs) or that you know some people just enjoy it for the sensorial experience of it but whatever way you look at it people there is an enjoyment of having that connection with what's under your feet and that grounding feeling Mm, I guess it sort of comes into certain cultures and religions as well so anyway uh the other thing that struck me with with this lexicon is kind of that obviously it's come about through time it's it's a it's a language that's developed over millennia and also by probably by people that aren't desperately trying to get their tax return in on time (laughs) before they pick up their kids from judo, see their shrink, then have a date night with Bay. It's sort of people that have, you've got to, you know, this, this has come about from people having time to go out and appreciate their surroundings and riff on it. Actually, I I was listening to a podcast the other day with, um, it was last week's Desert Island Discs with John Cooper Clark. It won't be last week by the time this podcast goes out. But um, <laughs> the, po- the, the Desert Island Discs with John Cooper Clark where he says, he said something about um you know if you want to be a poet if us try try it and it he if you want to be a poet you've got to have idle time and <laughs> it's it, i i feel like that's there's something to be said with this language that it's it's come about through possibly through people taking that time to appreciate their surroundings and uh, but on the contrary on the contrary contrast you, is it, is time or our conviction of being perpetually busy, especially in cities, which is a rather self-important endeavour, but well, that's another conversation. Um, is this a force that we're sort of reckoning against when it comes to conservation?
1: I think it could well be. I, there's definitely, you know, a real resistance against doing nothing or being sort of unproductive um, or like wasting time. Um, and I think there is a similar prejudice when it comes to conservation that like leaving things alone or like giving an ecosystem time and space to just sort of sort itself out uh, that's seen as sort of unproductive or wasteful or neglectful or something. Um, and I think similarly, you know, the the idea that kind of getting actively involved in nature has to be sort of strenuous or productive. um, is a myth that needs debunking as well like you know people think you have to be hacking away at weeds or climbing mountains and actually it could just be like taking off your socks and shoes in the local park or it could be sitting under a tree for half an hour um and that kind of yeah whether or not you're wasting that time is mm. a matter of personal opinion yeah there's a
0: lot of in between territory isn't there with our sort of drive for hyper productivity mm. yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that it, he, he also wraps it up, this up wonderfully and we're going to wrap this up wonderfully <laughs> with uh, his conclusion. It's, a, it's an amazingly simple conclusion that, you know, the simplification of language is the simplification of our relationship with the countryside and very much for the worse. So in expanding the way that we talk about the countryside, we expand our opportunities and our emotional connection to it
1: yeah i think it's a really powerful idea actually um and i think it kind of uh yeah connects with uh, something that he was saying earlier about the kind of categorization of language um and how we think about the natural world because we have these different systems through which we view it i guess mm, that brownfield
0: um, greenfield sort of very dual yeah and if you, or if
1: you're looking at ecology versus geology yeah. um or if you're looking at kind of a particular species versus uh you know air quality or something um but actually all of those things are obviously really closely connected um and i think what looking at ecosystems can tell us And what I think the rewilding movement is trying to kind of centralise as a point of view um, is that everything is interconnected. And by simplifying relationships, like imagining uh, food chains as opposed to food webs, um, that by doing that, you're sort of fundamentally ignoring this interconnectivity and also of our role within those ecosystems. It makes it much easier to say, well, that's the food chain we're not part of it so we don't affect it and it doesn't affect us whereas actually that's really not the case um and by kind of simplifying the language that we use to talk about those things we make it much easier to ignore those sort of nuances of geographical specificity and locality mm. as well um and i think um yeah something he says about sort of the sort of wonder of the natural world is really interesting too like that We're cutting ourselves off from almost this enchantment that the natural world can have. And again, it's that aesthetic point that people think, oh, enchantment, that's not really a real thing. That's frivolous. It's
0: kind of finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. right? Exactly. Or vice versa, however way you want to look at it.
1: Exactly. And I think, you know, that idea of re-enchantment is actually really powerful and really vital um, for kind of... Yeah, by like rediscovering these kind of forgotten ways of talking about the natural world
0: it's an almost childlike quality isn't it and mm. when you look at again going back to Dominic's previous work on wild swimming as you may tell by now I'm a bit of a fanboy um it there is a childlike curiosity that comes with that of seeking sp- these it's, it's even finding these some of these swim spots is an adventure in itself, and it's, it brings about this sort of childlike appreciation,
1: yeah, definitely, and I think that that adventure in the natural world is potentially a very powerful tool for children and and for adults mm. um that maybe we can reenchant ourselves um but also maybe we can sort of reenchant each other in yeah. the process
0: so why don't why don't we finish this podcast and go climb a tree? <laughs> Well, thank you very much again for joining me, Anna. That's really interesting stuff. And thank you to Dominic for his wonderful talk. Please do join us again for the next podcast where we will we will be talking about another avenue of rewilding. Um, until then, see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or for more information, visit omvedgardens.com or follow us on Instagram at Ombed Gardens.